There are 574 tribal nations represented across the United States. They each have their own cultural richness, way of living, and customs. They also have health disparities and trouble with the acquisition of resources. Tribal Health, the podcast, wants to shed light on them and bring solutions available to improve access for tribal and indigenous communities. And now your hosts, Melody Lewis, Mario Trujillo, and Morgan Haynes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tribal Health, the podcast. It's me, Melody, and Mario here for you as your hosts, co-hosts for this episode. And I'm going to turn it over to our guests, Deidre and Kenrick, to do an introduction. Deidre, you want to start us out? Hello, my relatives. I greet you all with a heartfelt handshake. Uh, My name is Deidre Whiteman. And I am the Director of Research and Education for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Creative Director of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Kenrick Escalani. My traditional name and practice given to me by my elders is Hale. And I'm a citizen of the Quetzal Nation. And I'm the creative director for the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Thank you for having us. Oh my gosh, thank you. I mean, even just your intros are impressive. Um, tell us a little bit about what you all do. So it's uh, we are a national nonprofit organization based out of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it was founded in 2011. We are our our mission is to uh, bring awareness and about the boarding school uh, era and provide healing resources for boarding school survivors. Are you guys based here? You said you're in Minneapolis, but uh, did your work span across all, all of across Indian country? Yes, it yes. does. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our headquarters is in Minneapolis, but uh, our team is spread out throughout Indian country from the East Coast to the West. And then tell me a little bit about the programs or services that you guys are currently implementing. Well, what we do is what we're trying to do is we're trying to pursue the understanding and addressing the ongoing trauma of the Indian boarding school policy. So right now we do a lot of outreach. Uh, we provide a lot of resource uh, to survivors. And we're also pursuing a bill uh, right now in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're trying to get uh, two bills passed, which is H.R. 5444 and Senate Bill 2907, uh, the Truth and Healing Commission bill. And so That's a lot of our work is really trying to hit the ground and kind of educate not only uh, non-natives, but also Indian country as well. Because what we've learned is that there's a lot of suppression in Indian country when it comes to the history of boarding schools, you know, and that was by design. A lot of this trauma and this uh, what I like to call a blueprint for genocide, definitely all by design. And we were assimilated and we were forced to think that this was all a good process. So let's talk a little bit about like I'm looking again at the the work in Kenrick. I'm probably treating cheating a little bit because I know your background. <laughs> but can you can you both talk a little bit about the importance of the policy work? You know, like I, I know that, you know, there's national organizations like NCAI, which I know Kenrick, you were a part of. And you know, what's the 
let's talk about policy work across Indian country and your guys' experience as an organization. I'll go first. I mean, as far as like, you know, the policy work that we're doing in regards to HR 5444 and S2907, I mean, it's important because, you know, we all need healing. And, you know, that's what our our main focus is uh, in regards to NABS. That's what we we call our organization at the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. We, we go by NABS uh, nationally. And so uh, we're all about truth, justice, and healing. And how do we do that is by advocacy. And so with this Truth Commission, uh, it's similar to the Truth Commission that happened in Canada. So when CanLoops happened, there was a Truth Commission that was uh, created in Canada. And so that opened up this document that basically kind of gave the the marching orders to see what we can do to get a resolution on these policies. So we're trying to do that here in the U.S. And so, and what does that really do for us? That's going to help inform families about their families that haven't been documented. There's so much documentation that is hidden or has been destroyed. And so what we're trying to do within HR 5444 and S2907, we're, we're trying to get, you know, the subpoena power and try to get access to these documents and not just from the federal government, but also from the churches. I mean, it's just th- this is the groundwork that that we do. And, you know, we, we and we have great partnerships with other outside organizations, like you mentioned, with NCAI, Idra, if you want to name a few. We are also partnering with the National uh, Indian Education Association, various tribal organizations. Uh, uh, again, like Kenrick was mentioning, uh, a lot of our work is on education, not only not only non-natives, but natives as well. Just, I mean, I've only been in this position since April, and I've had to do a lot of kind of retelling, retelling our own stories, and then also, you know, asking the question, you know, did boarding schools commit genocide? And so far in the presentations that I've been um, been a part of, over 95% of the response is no. And so to me, that tells me that there's a lot of education that needs to still continue to happen, especially in understanding you know, the history and the problems we still face today in American Indian communities. Another thing to point out, too, is that we've done a lot of work with the U.S. Department of Interior, uh, with Secretary Holland's team. I'm very thankful for our secretary and all her staff. I think they're doing amazing work, groundbreaking work. And uh, we've been working alongside them, uh, especially with their investigative of a report that they've been working on. And we're going to continue that that uh, partnership uh, for the coming years. But the thing to point out is that the DOI can only share and only give out so much information. So it, it's what we do here at NAMS is that we we take that information and then we expand upon it uh, the only way we can. When you look at uh, certain numbers, like the DOI report uh, only mentions 408 boarding schools, you know, and our number is 509, you know, so there's just, there there's things that, you know, we can you know, point out that the DOI currently can't, you know, and it's just because of the fact that we can outline certain things that are, there was boarding schools that were beyond the federal government. So that that's what one of the things that we do. I have a question with, it sounds like a lot of the outreach that you all do is uh, surrounding education about the trauma. And you, you spoke about 
the need for healing? Do you offer opportunities for healing from generational trauma or for, from those experiences, like healing retreats or um, anything else other than education? Is that something that you offer now? Right now, we provide uh, monthly virtual healing events. Um, you know, we've been doing that since the pandemic, and we're gonna we're gonna continue those moving forward. And then also, we, we you know we actually travel with Secretary Holland and her team. Uh, she's been doing her road to healing tour, where she's been visiting different sites, and she's been having listening sessions. And so we go there. And again, this goes back to what the DOI can and can't do. Their purpose is to have a listening session with the communities. So they they come, they they visit, they listen, and then they they move on. And what we do at NAVS is that we try to stick around in those communities and kind of talk to those survivors and, you know, give them the opportunity to feel like they're in a safe, sp safe space and that they can continue the communication with us once DOI leaves. Also to point out that we are in the process of hiring a director of healing and that person will do the work, you know, nationally, on a national level, work with communities to provide healing spaces, healing sessions in the community. We are also creating models that even tribal communities can, may use in the future, um, partnering with other organizations who are already doing the work. Um, but this is kind of our long-term goal. Um, as you mentioned, or as you asked, you know, how are, how are we doing the, our part in our, the healing? And we, we recognize that, you know, each tribal community is different and their healing sessions and how they offer healing to their community members are going to look different, you know, from one region to the next. And so I feel like to me, this is one of the most uh, powerful or most meaningful work that we do is because we want to really embrace and care for our survivors and, and their descendants, because you know, we, we all live with the the aftermath of what happened at these boarding schools. And so how, how can we move forward in, in, a, in a good way and, and, you know, still live and thrive? And so this is one of the our strategic goals that we're trying to address uh, for the future. Wow, that's awesome. And I mean that you said director of healing. That would be an incredible opportunity just for them to build those connections with uh, the different communities around the country. Because as you said, there there's so many different healing practices and cultural um, approaches to heal, right? So um, what a great opportunity just for that person, whoever's in that role, to to learn about the vast cultures that are are present within healing and then learn a skill to approach these, uh, the need of healing within uh, your nonprofit. That's awesome. The other thing too, is that we're trying to share the ability to have an understanding. And that understanding is when it comes to these traumas, and sometimes we don't realize even within Indian country that where these traumas come from, but ultimately they're not our fault. Meaning like we have the highest inequities and injustices within our communities. And, you know, I like to say this a lot anywhere I speak to anybody, but, you know, we had the opportunity to sit down and speak with Secretary Holland. And one of the things she told us was that when you think about every inequity, every injustice, you can literally follow the roots of a tree and it all points to boarding schools, all points to boarding schools from us having the highest suicide rates, low graduation rates, high levels of diabetes, mental illness, poverty, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women, alcoholism, substance abuse, all the things you can think of 
but even more intimately in the home, you know, that if it wasn't you, you know, a cousin, you know, someone who didn't have a loving home, didn't have a grandparent who was loving, or you had that mean uncle or auntie, you know, who just never told you they loved you. And you always asked yourself, is this my fault? Like, is this my fault that I don't have this, this warmth or this empathy? And the answer is no, it's not your fault. This was all conditioned. This was all a part of a, a playbook that was created way back in the 1800s. And we're still living with it today. I'm like processing over here. I don't know if you could see my face, <laughs> but th this is a podcast, so you won't see my face, those that are listening. But, you know, that right there, I think, is just like a powerful statement. I was thinking about just before you started speaking was to share like my own personal story about you, you only know what you know. So if you're going into, which is Deidre, I have so many questions about you when it comes to education and the education systems and curriculum and teaching and all that other things, but you only know what you know. So if you're going through, like, again, I, I might've shared this on this podcast before, but my parents raised me to go to school and they didn't teach me my language and they didn't teach me cultural customs. What they were trying to do is what they thought was safe for me. Right. Like you go to school, you get a degree and then you get a job, you know, but that job, you know, come back and serve your community with that. Right. But you have to learn those ways. And like even just, again, knowing what you only know and didn't learn about me personally, my own personal journey about the impact of boarding schools until I was an adult, like in the last 10 years. Right. And you're just like, wow, I needed that information as somebody that's going along this journey of just life, right? I needed that information to fill this hole that I have somewhere here in my heart that was not filled. And now I could start this other journey of healing. And so I think this, again, the statement that you just shared, I was like, I never realized, like it just connected the dots for me. Like, oh, that's why my dad never said he loved me. You mentioned that. Oh, that's why I was probably feeling this type of emotion, you know? And I, I think the work that you're doing is very critical and super important for our communities uh, because you're exactly right. Health inequities are a result of boarding schools. And I know that now. And there's a lot of awareness and education that needs to be shared. There's a lot of work to be done to build that capacity. I'm so excited and so grateful that you guys agreed to be on this podcast because now this is, I'm like going to pin this to the top of our page and share this across the world because it's like, this is definitely something that needs to be done. They need to know about your organization and they need to know about the work that you guys are doing because it's critical and important. And um, Deja, just to, I work in education and I've seen that your background is in education. Do you have any thoughts or feedback on how the education systems or, yeah, I guess the education systems could help support your, your mission at your organization? We have uh, some resources on our website and also in the future it's going to re be revamped. But some of the information, as I've gathered, you know, in these short months that I've been here with NABS is that a lot of 
educators don't know that, you know, this, this occurred, that this genocide happened here. And so they, it's, uh, it's pretty, for them, it's pretty far-fetched when they first learn about this information and like how, well, how does this relate to now? How does this relate to the outbursts I'm having in my classroom? How does this relate to the, the, the high ACES scores my, you know, my students have? And so I, I always like to frame it as, you know, it's, it, there, that this is the connection of historical trauma and, and this is how you can move forward in your classroom is also by addressing it, you know, not trying to run from it, but also finding more therapeutic practices. Cause I, I was a, I, you know, I was a first grade teacher and, you know, I, I witnessed a lot of these traumas with my students. And even for me, it was, you know, as a native teacher, it was re-triggering at times for myself. And so I had to, I had, there was no if, ands, or buts, I had to incorporate uh, a smudging practice. I had to incorporate uh, more therapeutic where we had time for movement in the beginning. And I all I had to incorporate a love of learning for the students because a lot of the times classrooms are so rigid, like you have to follow this, this, and this. You have to follow these rules. And it's like, for me, I was like, well, how do I engage students to be more who want to learn, who want to come to school and learn. And so this is just my experience, you know, working in, in, in Native communities. We could have, Melanie, we could have another podcast on this. <laughs> 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 but I just, yeah, I just want to say that it's just, it, it's, it's, there's so much work to be done that sometimes it can be uh, overwhelming, but there are resources, especially for teachers, like when you need something immediately, when you need access immediately, it's just helping, you know, how do we find those tools? And so I do encourage, you know, anytime I'm talking with pre-service teachers or youth workers or just people who work in the community is really get educated about trauma-informed care because those practices really do come in handy at, you know, at a, at a split of the moment when a student is breaking down or when a student is just in crisis, those tools really do help you, help you immediately in the immediate now. So does that answer your question, Melody? Okay. <laughs> I, like I said, I could, we could just do a whole series on, on, on this, on this topic, education. You know, and one thing I want to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying, Melody, about your upbringing. I mean, your, your upbringing isn't isolated, you know, your examples just as uh, just the same as mine, you know. I had I had long hair, you know, as a as a little boy, you know, all the way up until four years old, and then uh, kindergarten came around, and you know, I, I got my hair cut, you know. And at the time, I didn't understand it. All I knew was is that I was getting ready to go to school, and I needed to to look a certain way and be a certain way. And you know, it was because I just always figured it was because of my you know my father's upbringing in the military, but. Ultimately, it was what he was taught by his his grandparents, which were my great grandparents. And, you know, they were a part of the boarding school system. You know, they went to, you know, Phoenix Indian School and they also went to Carlisle. And so all that was ingrained in them, you know, and so they just thought they were doing best practices with their family. You know, this is how we're supposed to be. And this is why when we have reconnecting natives, you know, trying to come back to the community. And, you know, a lot of times they, they feel like I was just trying to do what I was taught. I was told to go to school to be that good Indian, you know, but when they get home, they feel like, oh, sh I don't, I don't belong. I, I, I can't speak my language. I don't know how to sing or dance. Uh, you know, I, I feel out of place. And so 
you know, it goes back to that advocacy. You know, we try to go to these communities and we try to share resources and tell them, you know, it was all by design. Don't feel like, you know, you have failed as an individual. This was all done by design. I mean, imagine being a four-year-old as young as three years old, forcefully removed from your home. And sometimes those three-year-olds, those four-year-olds never came back. And the ones that did, they were completely assimilated. So that's why we have communities in Indian country where, does it ever occur to you why? And maybe let me know if this is the same out in Fort Mojave, but I know this is this way in Quetzal, is that we're such a small little community, yet we have three churches within our community. That's by design. So, you know, these assimilative practices have been around since 1800s to today. I mean, one thing to point out, and this is probably something that most people don't even realize, is that there's still 112 schools, boarding schools, that are still open today. You know, like also, we, we also had churches all the way actually one around. There was, they were around our villages. There's one, two, there was two of them just right down the street from each other, from a, a block away from our village. I grew up in the church and my parents are avid uh, Christians and I still go to church. And that's like the complication of, you know, like when you get older and then you realize like, oh, that was the role of the church and all of this, you know? So I think I, the other thing that I want to talk about is like, which I, again, probably talk about this on every episode is the complexity of indigenous identity and and having to navigate and understand things that we grew up and believed in. And now as an adult, you're hearing, you know, truth for or seeing, getting access to information and knowledge that uh, you know, me personally, I've never had. And so I think all three of us are sharing our own experiences of being an Indigenous person uh, today after, you know, what you said, the after effects, and it's very complex and there's a lot of things to have to navigate and learn and unlearn and relearn, you know. And um, second part to that piece of 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 um, you know, like the the boarding schools. Also, like there's a a school in California that all of our kids went to in California and Riverside County area. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. And so it was just like, oh, that's. To me, I didn't, I thought that's just what you did, you know, like, oh, I'm going to go to school. It's a different school. That's a boarding school. And as an adult, I'm just like, after learning it, I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> that's you know, what funny. that school was. <laughs> you know, it's funny about that, you know, and this goes for a lot of these type of schools. There's a stigma to those schools, too. I know me growing up, you know, Sherman was like, we always said, oh, the bad kids go there. <laughs> oh, oh, they were shipped off, you know, and it's like, that's, that's not the case. That's not the case at all. That's true. That's true, man. Yeah. I think there is a whole nother podcast too on like, yeah, also talking about education as well, which you're exactly right, DJ. Cause I started thinking about tribal colleges and the role of, you know, modern day boarding schools and what those look like. So uh, I don't, I think what you've guys both have shared so far has just been so such an honor like just to be on this call with you to talk through and share stories and give this to out and share this out right so i appreciate both of you so much for the work that you're doing and you know stepping into these roles that are not easy to 
be a part of like, man, to go to those listening sessions and go to the communities to be the one to share this, this information, I'm sure has to be also healing work and a personal journey for yourself. So I'll be forever grateful um, for the work that you're doing. So thank you. You know, and I also would like to say thank you to you too, as you know, as a part of the media. And I just uh, spoke uh, at a media conference and I was really sharing with them the importance of, you know, just sharing the truth and, you know, not going after the clickbait, you know, be thorough in what you're telling because we need it, you know, because not only Indian country, but, you know, outside of Indian country, just like Deidre mentioned, we, they don't know. They don't, they just don't know, you know, because one way they pictured, or they portrayed boarding schools was that this was a good a good deed that was being done. So in the time, you know, people thought, oh, let's donate to the churches because they're helping these merciless savages who need to change their ways. You know, so, you know, we're, we're now in a light in a time where we can say, no, that's wrong. And I, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it's important. You know, one of our survivors, uh, Matthew Warbonnet, one of the things he said, and he was able to testify in Washington, D.C., and he said that our grandchildren need to know what happened to us so that they know that their grandparents' behavior was not their fault. And so, you know, I always re- kind of repeat that, you know, because I, I really want people to know because in these listening sessions, we're, we're with 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds, and when they talk, they're talking from the perspective of when they were kids, just kids. And they're still full of the trauma. And you hear it in their voices when they tremble. But, the, you know, one of the good things about our current president of our board, Sandy Whitehawk, you know, she says our tears are our superpower. And so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, even if your voice trembles, still still say what you need to say. And so that's a part of the healing process. And just to kind of piggyback off what Kenrick was mentioning we did a, a, a conference, we uh, presented at a conference of elders a couple months ago, and I did ask the question of, is boarding school, is that, should we be teaching about what happened at boarding schools? And overwhelmingly, the whole room, I mean, it was a crowd of maybe 150 elders all said yes. And so to me, this just validates, you know, that this information is needed you know, it's coming from our elders, it's coming from our survivors, that this has to be talked about so that, you know, we can start healing our children, healing our families and our youth, because, you know, like Kendrick mentioned, you know, this affects them. And, you know, we have to, we have to learn how to move forward. And and how can we, if if we don't know the truth? So that's why it's really important. I know, yeah, sometimes it's hard, it can be hard, like you mentioned, Melody, but it, it, it's necessary. And uh, I feel like the team that we have at NABS, you know, is probably one of the most uh, phenomenal teams I've ever worked with. I mean, everyone's doing such good work there or work here. And, you know, we just we just want to see our families and our communities heal. Yeah, thank you both for sharing your experience and what you all are doing. This is work like none other because it comes with a heavy, heavy heart. And I'm sure a toll on all of you with energy and generational trauma, but thank you so much for the work that you do and the education that you bring, because even though it's hard to talk about and hard to even listen to, 
it's necessary as we address, move forward and heal. So, I mean, thank you. I've been processing a lot of what you are saying and I'll probably process for, I mean, the next couple of days because I mean, this is heavy and necessary. Thank you. I took, um, Henrik, you'll know this. So I'm gonna ask this question now, but at the end of every podcast, we try to build community through language and, you know, our words we use in our community. So I always like to end with it. But what is your favorite res slang and use it in a sentence? And I think, Kenneth, you know where this one came from, but we carried it over here. So I'm going to turn it over to you guys to share some of your slang from your communities. Idra, go first. <laughs> A's. <laughs> uh, in it, I like to use uh, in it a lot, especially when my girls are telling me uh, some BS story about like because they're teenagers. I'm like, oh, in it. <laughs> my my mom went to I'm part Tewa Hopi, and she went to our Hopi Res. There's this little shop that's right outside, and. She got me a t-shirt and she brought it back and was she was so proud. But she has a it says in it on the on my t-shirt. So I wear it uh in it. It looks like awesome. the you know, like the milk commercial, like you know how it says milk and it's like yeah, black and white. So it says in it. Awesome. You know, for for my community, you know, growing up, uh one of the phrases we would say a lot and and you know our elders would say hey that's slang you know what are you doing that's not that's not how you say it you know we'd be like uh what's coming doom we'd say that like that would be like our like our way of connecting of being you know quits on you know quits coming doom basically what it means is us trying to say what's up or to to each other you know but like i don't even think it's proper you know cuz if you try to say quits coming doom to an elder they just look at you like what <laughs> you know, and then our our women in our community they use this word, and it's it's just a way of saying like like yeah, like you know, they say and yeah. So you know, and, and we used to have these group of girls back in uh, high school where they like they would get caught in just saying and yeah over and over again. They'd just be la- they would laugh that they said it together. They'd say it all in unison and yeah, and then they'd be laughing because they said it and they'd say it over and over and over. And so. You know, those are some of the the slangs that stick with me. And I, you know, I really kind of like how we're in pop culture now. And so, like, as Indian country at large, you know, saying Skoden and, you know, Studis and stuff. And because of reservation dogs and all these things that are on, you know, within media, I just, I, I love that outside of Indian country, people are hearing our voices. I think it's the coolest thing ever because, you know, we all know we didn't grow up with that. And hearing like my kids, they take that for granted. Like it's all like, oh yeah, like we're on TikTok, we're on everything. And it's like, you know, like celebrities know who we are and all this stuff. And it's like, that wasn't our upbringing at all. I think, I couldn't even tell you who, I think all I grew up with was Uncle Adam Beach. That's the only guy I had, you know, smoke signals. (laughs) That's all I had. For those of you that don't know, go watch Smoke Signals. That's our plug. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Uncle Adam. Yeah, that's so funny. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. And thank you for all the listeners for tuning in to this very important, critical podcast. So we'll see you next time. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Tribal Health, the podcast. 
We hope you enjoyed today's guest. For the show notes, resources, and more, please visit podcast.tribalhealth.com. If you want to learn more about how tribal health can be a solution to health disparities, please visit us at www.tribalhealth.com.